I'm here today with Stu Gerling, the creator of Love Yoga Anatomy. Um, he teaches anatomy and yoga worldwide, and he's most famous probably for the per- well-known Purple Valley interviews with many famous yoga teachers. And, and now I think you've done a lot of movers and, and all different, and not just yoga around the world, right? Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Adam. Yeah, now I, I try to broaden my perspective because, of course, being a Shanghai practitioner myself and then being a Purple Valley, only a Shanghai teacher. And um, I just thought, well, there's, there's other perspectives. And so it would be nice to talk to other yoga styles and other people that do different types of movement practices. So basically, yeah, just try to broaden my perspective and, and learn also from as many people as possible. Because that's one of the great things about interviewing people is you get to ask them lots of questions <laughs> generally about what you want to know about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, let's just go from the start. How did you get into yoga in the first place? Well, I mean, I'm assuming um, for your listeners, I think I know you have a, you still have a daily practice of roughly, well, what probably roughly resembles Ashtanga, let's say, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you looked at it at this very moment in time, it's probably a bit of a dubious whether it's still Ashtanga or not, but we call it Ashtanga anyway. And um, yes, that's always been my practice from the yeah almost from the very first year that we started, which we were thinking the other day, almost 20 years ago. Um, but we started in a gym, actually. We started just like quite a few people. Um, yoga was free in this particular gym we went to. So we were we were training and we could see it going on. They had a glass in the studio so we could see the yoga going on in it. And we were actually trying all sorts of free classes like bums and tums and Bosu things and whatever we could get our hands on because we were a bit sort of exercise junkies. So that we thought, oh, let's have a go. So we had a go and uh, we liked it for some bizarre reason, not quite sure why. Uh, so we started it and we, we were there at this particular place for a month. So we continued it for that month and we sort of got into it. And we were actually traveling at the time. So we were looking for ways of staying fit and without continually having to pay for stuff. And, and so it seemed like quite a good idea. We're just using the body weight and didn't need much equipment yeah. um, for our year out. So that was one of the reasons that we stuck with it. Mm. Yeah. And then, of course, you get addicted to it, and, and then that was easy and just kept doing it. <laughs> so, but to start with, it was just really a form of uh, easily an exercise you could take with you wherever you went and you didn't need much stuff. How, yeah, yeah. And how uh, how would you say you've evolved with it? From has it become? I mean, I think it's quite, quite well known to be like a quite an anatomical and kind of materially grounded kind of guy. Let's say, have you evolved with the spiritual aspect, or have you in its box? Or how would you say your your feeling? Yeah. I don't. Unfortunately, I don't think I have evolved that much. <laughs> <laughs> I, keep, I keep waiting for something to happen. <laughs> but I am grounded. I think I feel grounded. And and people I talk to, I say that I'm not spiritual, I'm not this. And they say, yeah, but you are really. And and so I suppose I I I don't have any aspirations for the for the physical practice other than keeping my body healthy and enjoying the process of exploring the body. I'm not looking to 
transform in any other plane or energetic plane, shall we say. Um, should that happen, fine. But, but I don't enjoy any less because of that. Uh, but I do, I do still associate it with, with movement and with, with physical use of the body more than I associate with, or oh, I must get on the mat to calm my mind or to whatever. In which case, isn't there better? I mean, it's often been a question that's run through my head. Isn't there better modalities to do in terms of movement then? If it's just a question of keeping the body fit, why not lift weights? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if, if you thought of purely a, of, of the Stanga practice or any yoga really as just a physical practice, then you could probably say, yeah, there are, there are other better things to be doing or combination of better things to be doing because no one exercise will mm. cover all the bases. Yeah, it's either this CB or it's strength or it's flexibility or whatever. There's very little that could cover everything. But um, I two things, really. One is um, I like the feeling of stretching. <laughs> so from the physical point of view, I've always been attracted to, to that sensation. And when I teach, funny enough, I talk about the problems with having a sensation-based practice because yeah. you're always looking for that sensation. Yeah. So it's... I'm not saying it's ideal, but I do like the sensation of stretching the body out. I do like the being in a body that can do all these crazy things. You know, I think that does keep you young to be in a body that is mobile um, and also strong. Mm. Um, and then, so that from that side of thing, that's sort of one aspect. But another big aspect of it is actually, um, I always near enough practice with my wife. And we practice together um, synchronously. And um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we, we go through the whole thing together in time, basically. Even the breathing. Yeah. <laughs> well, luckily, because we started together um, 20 years ago, um, we sort of adopted the same pace and the same breath. And, and we were always on this traveling experience, we were often not going to a studio and just the two of us practicing on a rooftop or a, a, in a field yeah. or something, car park, all sorts of places. And so that's, that gives us a certain connection. And I really like, I really enjoy that doing it together and the energetic quality of, of doing something together like that to be in time um, We've done all sorts of things together in the past. I played tennis, we did used to go to the gym together and run and things like that. But um, normally it involves some amount of swearing on my behalf in my direction. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so this doesn't, this is normally quite calm. It's kind of the first time I've thought of it as a, like a kind of bridge in a relationship in a way. I mean, you can share, so as in like, I guess Teresa and myself have shared the focus of practice over the years, you know, going to Mysore and, you know, having a yeah. kind of facilitated practice, but never the actual practice space. In fact, if that was shared, that was a, that was a, a disaster. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. A lot of people is like, no, this is my practice. Keep your bloody yeah. nose out of it. We want to do this. Yeah. Yeah. 
But I think because I think yoga offers up the opportunity that you can do a posture next to somebody to whatever depth that you want to do it to without actually influencing the other person, so to speak. So like when you play tennis, for instance, if you've got one person that can hit the ball harder or has got a better backhand or whatever, the game is complete shite, basically, isn't it? Because one person is having a really easy time and the other person is running around like a lunatic at the other end, which is what I used to do to my poor wife sometimes. <laughs> so, hence the swearing. So, whereas with yoga, you can both be doing Peshimotanasana or, or whatever, and one person can be laying on their legs and the other person can be sitting more upright and having the same experience, shall we say. The, the depth of the posture is not what's important. It's the concentration and the breath and the sensations, shall we say. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, just before we move on, to come back to the idea of the, like, using physical modality. And it, it seems to me, it's always a question for me, if you're using it just as a physical modality, where does all the lotus stuff come in? Because that is not good. Is that good for the physical modality? I mean, I've completely gone off piece of my questions here, but it seems to me the lotus, <laughs> stuff, the lotus stuff is stimulating the finger, stimulating the energy at the base of the spine in a kind of psychic way or a more kind of, let's say, the esoteric or energetic way than the physical. Um, how would you put the healthy uh, lotus and the hips and the crazy legs that you're doing so much kind of particular work that doesn't seem good for anything in normal life, particularly? And there's a lot of time spent with the legs and cranking the leg into the position of maybe not cranking. <laughs> 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 that's, that's not cranking. Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, um, I would say, uh, I'm picking figures out of the sky here, but 60-70% of people doing some form of Padmasana, Westerners anyway, shouldn't be doing it because they're not opening up in the hips and they're putting pressure on their knees or their ankles. Yeah. So it's, it's nothing in a way that's wrong with the posture. It's like you can always say it's not the fault of the posture, it's the fault of the practitioner that's doing it and ignoring the fact that they need to be open in other places in order to do the posture. Um, so does it serve any purpose? Um, not loads, I think. I mean, it's more, it's more, it's more of a... It's more, I think, yeah, I think of it's more of a display of range of motion ability rather than to have benefits from holding that posture for any particular reason. Um, but I think with all things, it's, it's nice to have some targets or some, something to aim towards. So, and, and those sorts of things are something that you can use for that. Also, it's a really nice position to, see, to sit in. I mean, there isn't anything, if, should you do um, meditation, I think it is by far the most superior seat for it than anything else because you do feel so grounded and and be able to lift out of that position and breathe nicely but not of course if you shouldn't be any this is a kind of a sneaky but what happens if you take all that stuff out of the series then yeah. is will be doing something else or are you suggesting how would you work with that were you suggesting they should still do some version of it or should they cross the leg behind them but then they don't really get the same work really i mean what yeah like it's a big subject and you know what, what it's a big subject and, and, and this is this is the thing how much can you distort your standard practice and 
and it's still be a stinger. Yeah. yeah. How much can you take out? Um, you know, we, we've got this discussion at home at the moment, funny enough, because my my wife has hurt her wrist recently. Um, so we're not actually doing any vinyasas at all. She she won't, she refuses to do it on her wrist, which would be one option, or parallax, which would be another option, or even on forearms. So it's like we've taken all of the vinyasas, all the A's and B's, all the vinyasas. And you're doing the same. I'm not doing the same because we practice together. So I've also, we give them all the boot. So without that flow, is it still a stanger? And and then add into that the fact that we have some guest postures in there and some, like, for instance, Trianga Muka Kapada. Um, I actually don't lay forward, go forwards. I go backwards. I lay down. Instead. <laughs> so, so we've got, we've got some differences in yeah. there. Yeah, we so I don't know. Out there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's the essence of these things, isn't it? I mean, right. if you want to, if you like the dogma and you need the rigidity of a set of practice to work towards, uh, and that keeps you real, because I think there's something about having postures that you have to face and the challenge of those postures and 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 gives you the reality of what your body is actually capable of at that time. So I sort of like that idea, um, and some people need rules and regulations. But I think the practice is also about breath, banda, focus. Uh, and you can flow, funny enough, we are flowing quite well, even without the vinyasas, you know. And it, 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 you, you don't necessarily... I've surprised myself, really. I thought, this, God, this is going to be horrible, you know. How are you going to just change from one side to the next and one posture to the next? But actually, it's perfectly fine. And we've been doing it now maybe, you know, month or so so um i've got quite used to it really and now yeah. i'm thinking well, i'm not quite sure i want to do this jumping around guys <laughs> yeah i think you can get used to that right it feels like a lot of work yeah. jumping back again exactly and yeah. Actually, yeah. I, I used to find because i, I like i actually like the jumping but i would find myself you know focusing maybe too much on that you know okay let's make this jump good this time the last one was a bit shit you didn't jump high enough or you didn't touch the floor as you came through yeah. or whatever let's make sure you do it properly this time and and then this day i'm finding much more focused on the postures themselves rather than all the fluff in between yeah. so you know i think you picked a good point the transition can often become the focus where the posture should become yeah, the old Batavi Joyce idea. You've got the necklace, and then you've got the beads on the necklace being the postures. You know, yeah. Exactly. You know what you're saying is that you've got a vinyasa, you know, and a movement and a breath synchronicity, and that's essentially the essence of Ashtanga, which I think used to be called Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga uh, mm. at some point, at least. Um, you know, because it had this breath movement synchronicity, and you can do it when you're 19. You can't even stand up if you lift your arms and put them down in a conscious way. Exactly. And this is what we were thinking too, is like obviously as you get older, you, you can't take the same, um, you know, bounciness, shall we say, as you did when you were in your 20s or whatever. Yeah. So, but you can still keep the same essence of the, the sequences and, and uh, you know, and also, you know, to get stuck in, oh, I must do this posture, otherwise it's not the same practice. Yet that posture just might not be right for you. 
But you're also saying the culture should be a challenge. So I was going to come back to you to take you up on this, but yeah, of course. It has to be a challenge, right? And you also do those things in challenge. Another point, you also do mention that, you know, some things aren't right for that body or, you know, what to be. Exactly. I mean, there's nothing out of this argument, is there? But where do you stand on that? And how does someone who's listening find a kind of right situation between challenging themselves and just simply hurting themselves? Yeah, I think it comes back to body awareness and and being present. That's the first thing. To really know what you're doing and why you're doing it. So this is sort of how the anatomy feeds into things, how I think of things. It's like, well, what is different about this posture that I'm going to do now to the one that I did before or the one that's coming after that? Why are we bothering to do different postures? Yeah, to access different parts of the body. That's how I see it. So we want, first of all, to be making sure that when we are doing a posture, we're accessing the area that we think we're accessing or should be accessing rather than somewhere else. So the the big sort of uh, places where we try and uh, cheat or accommodate something is ankles, knees, back. Yeah. And so if I should be feeling in the hip and I'm feeling it in the knee or I'm feeling it in my back, well, I'm obviously trying to escape out of the restrictions in my hip and I need to be modifying that in a way that actually I get to the essence of the posture and not just make some sort of shape that looks similar to what I think it should look, but actually it's not doing me any good at all. So I think when it comes to whether a posture should the, how challenging should it be? I think we should approach a posture in the most accessible way at a particular time. So let's say it's Ray Chastner D, yeah, which is a big sticking point for a lot of people in um, the primary series. First of all, you know, I would have met that half pad masna already by the time I've got there. Yeah, if my half pad master in the heart of batters is dodgy. Yeah, my foot is sticking past my thigh, or my heel isn't in my groin or level with my belly button, or my knee is not on the floor in the seated posture, or my ankle is sickling. Well, that's already telling me basically that I shouldn't put my foot in half pad master when it comes to rigid or B for that matter, because the foundation of that movement isn't there. So, and because this is a more complicated posture, as deeper in the sequence, then the compromise will be even greater as I then start to raise that second leg up. So mm. I would need to approach it from a point of view, well, from that, that aspect, I know the foundational movements aren't available, so I shouldn't be going for the full posture. So I maybe then just place the foot underneath or next to the other foot and then yeah yeah also kind of predisposes that you in a difficult situation because you you kind of need the awareness to to work with the awareness right in a a way you need to understand what you ought to feel or what you could feel in order to do that right like i was going to ask you how, how do you find the essence of the posture if you don't know what the essence is you're looking for you know um, well, <laughs> how you feel you don't know what to feel um, yeah. and then also it leads to another question you've got this teacher looming in the background okay there's someone that's meant to know and yeah. I mean there's so many of them nowadays and of uh, varying um, maybe perspectives and abilities 
And even at Purple Valley, you well know that, you know, I mean, I worked a couple of seasons at Purple Valley as well. We had many different instructions on, on how to do the same thing, right? So yeah. this ends, you know, what do you trust and how do you know if you're doing it wrong? Well, I, I think you trust your own body. Yeah, that's the first thing. The, the, the individual themselves, they live in their body and they know their body better than somebody standing from the outside and trying to impose their ideas on a body that they're not in, yeah? So I think a lot of teachers take the point of view that, well, you know, this is how I did the posture, it worked for me, therefore it should work for you. And so this is the way that you should do it. But actually that's not the case at all. You know, there might be some guidelines and, and maybe you can lead or give people insight as to the experience that you have. But because our bodies, although look similar, are actually, you know, different, the potential patterns are different, even as the underlying skeletal structure can be yeah. slightly different. Each person is going to experience things slightly differently. So I think, you know, a teacher themselves should know the essence of the different postures. They should want to say, well, this is a twist, this is really a hip opener, an external direction, or, or whatever it might be at that end. And so they can definitely guide the student along those lines. Um, and students themselves need to take the responsibility to know what they should be doing. You can't just leave it all up to the teacher to, to tell you everything because of the fact you've got a room full of people and they can't be everywhere at the same time. So I think with something like this, if you're interested in the practice, you need to do some homework and find out what it is you are meant to be doing in the different postures. So nobody is just going to give it to you. Yeah, it's not going to just materialise in your mind. I don't yeah. Think. So you're saying that you can kind of do the posture quite differently and preserve the essence of the posture, which I quite like. So the posture, yeah. Physically, as a form, the posture could look quite different with different people. I think so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and. I mean, it's still going to be, you know, trichinesse is still going to look like trichinesse, but for me, shall we say, there's not many people that should be holding their big turn, yeah, uh -huh. because they just haven't got the range of motion in the hip. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the big, oh, you've got to hold your big turn. Well, I mean, you know, like, exactly. I can think exactly. of a couple of other interviewees that um, yeah. <laughs> probably try and earn your mistake for that. Exactly, exactly. And so I, I can, I can Luckily, I'm completely on the fence in my position here. <laughs> but I'll try and push you over to my side of the fence. From, from, from my point of view, okay, you see a picture of, say, Greg O'Malley in, in his fantastic book, doing trick and ass there, holding his big toe, and everything looks fantastic. He's all in line, you know, he's, yeah. he's not distorting the body, the torso is coming out in a straight line, blah, 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 whatever. Everything looks good. Um, and for him, that's perfectly fine. But for another individual that tries to copy that, and they haven't got the same ranges of motion in the hips, shall we say, which is predominantly where it's going to be coming from, they distort the, the posture by rounding their back or coming across. Uh, and when you look at them from the front line, they're, they're, they're nowhere near uh, well aligned, shall we say. And not that... Uh, this is sort of dodgy ground because for me alignment is a fluid thing. It isn't, you know, you must do it yeah, like this. Right. It's about, what, yeah. what, what's best for you as an individual? Yeah. Is there an, an, well, they would, the other argument would be there's an energy in taking the big toe, so bend the leg. Yeah. Um, 
if you can stop yourself from twisting over to get it, maybe. But I think even with bending the leg, there's so many people that will still be in this sort of hunched over position. Um, and particularly, you know, I try and think of it from many different aspects. And, and that is that so many people spend a lot of the day sitting. So many people have already yeah. back issues going on just from an unhealthy lifestyle, unhealthy movement patterns. And then you're going to put them in a position where that back is potentially vulnerable by getting them to round it, load it, strain. Uh, it's going to compromise their breathing. It would, you know, where is your energy quality in that? Would you not have a much better energetic flow if you forgot the big toe and kept your body in a much healthier position? Um, I think that's going to do a lot more benefit for you and, and work down towards it over time. If if you ever got to it, I would say still probably, I don't know, 80% of people, yeah, maybe that's too high, 50%, let's go 50% of people, should never be holding their big toe ever, ever in their whole okay, practice. Yeah. Because it just you can't reach it without distorting their line of, of alignment. Yeah, Not that alignment is, it has to be to the blueprint, shall we say, but yeah. as far as what might be beneficial for their, their personal body. I think if you look at the Yoga Sutras, the only thing that's really said on Asana is Siddham Sukhamasana. Asana is steady and comfortable. So mm. that ends. Um, you've certainly uh, got maybe maybe an advocate in them, potentially. Um, <laughs> I knew I was on the right line somewhere. Now you've just, <laughs> now you've just confirmed. Him, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I have to... Um, I have to start mentioning the Purple Valley interviews a little bit because you're obviously sure. on a board doing those Purple Valley interviews. Um, can you tell us anything, you know, kind of interesting that you got from, from doing them that, you, that was different as you went through or, you know, kind of de- developed your own yoga thinking, uh, meeting all different people? I mean, you're in such a unique position, having assimilated so many different points of view there. How, how did it affect yeah. you? And maybe how did it affect your practice? Um, I think it was a fantastic opportunity, first of all, because it wasn't only just the, the interviewing of the, the teachers, but because I also practiced with the teachers mm. as well, before even interviewing most of the time, mm. then you also got a depth of knowledge about how they were, their presence in the room, how they approached different postures, how they interacted with students. And, and sometimes, you know, it wasn't always, the, you might say, the most advanced physical practitioners that were the best teachers, you know, it, it doesn't, you don't, you know, you can do but not necessarily be able to teach or the, the person that um, made the students feel the most uh, energised or most comfortable or so many different qualities and, and I found that I liked different teachers for different things and then also was sometimes surprised how my own personal, how would you say, place at that moment in time also influenced my perspective of the teachers that I was in contact with, if that makes sense. So very much your, your own enjoyment or your own perspective of a teacher is involved in how you're thinking personally. So if I give you an example, for instance, yeah. um, Petri Reisman, yeah, yeah. Um, 
really lovely guy. And and so that's the, that's, that's the first. And the first time I ever met him, obviously, was before we before I interviewed him, just coming down the path at Purple Valley. And he greeted me like I'd known him 10 years or something like that. I don't know. It was just so warm and uh, he was so approachable that you immediately felt at ease in his presence and you thought, okay, this is going to be, you know, really cool. This seems like a really nice guy. And so then uh, I, I had practiced with him about four or five times, I imagine, over at Purple Valley. But the very first time, I was a bit hyper, I suppose. And um, Petri is very calm and very quiet and he doesn't get involved too much with with telling you stuff. And yeah. I, like, I like to be told stuff. I like to say, look, I don't care if somebody says that this is complete crap. You know, do it, you know, try doing it like this because at the moment it's rubbish. I, I, have, I have quite a, a hard skin, shall we say, or, or thick skin, as they call it. Um, so, and I'm quite um, secure in the knowledge that I know fuck all, basically, you know, relative to anything, really. And so I don't mean mind at all being told that I really need to change something or I don't know something. I'm quite secure that way. So, but Petri, he don't get involved too much, or he didn't then anyway. And so I found that, and because of his quietness and stillness, I found that a bit irritating, yeah? So I didn't enjoy it so much. Um, but I really liked him more so as a person. But, and, but then, a few years later, the same practicing again for the, I think it was that you should come to Bravo Valley for a month. I was in a different space in my own head. And actually, I'd gone through that phase of, of, of needing constant input. Right. And I really enjoyed that calmness and quietness and the, the, the presence that he had in the room. And so the same person, and he had acted exactly the same way, I imagine, yeah. over four years. But my own experience of it was was completely different, yeah. So, so maybe realize so, he's really in you, not the you know when we're exactly. looking at so finding something in a teacher is really kind of maybe kind of engendering a bit like a, a higher quality or vibration in our own selves, and then yeah. the teacher will give what's necessary, you know, ma- matching our state maybe. Or and yeah. it kind of leads on to what I was going to ask you next is like having seen all these teachers and seeing you know them in the practice room and them outside the room and you know what what would you say you look for in a good teacher uh, you know because it, what you're explaining there is not it's, it's definitely not just about asana in fact you, you're saying that asana is only a very small part of it if I understood you yeah I think that's exactly right I mean I like a teacher to be able to physically do what they're going to Right. Teaching, shall we say? So I like the teacher to have a, a relatively advanced practice because it shows that they've been able to educate their body themselves to do these certain things, which means that they've got half a chance of guiding you in the same direction. So I do like to see the teacher with a, a good practice themselves and also without uh, some nasty habits. So I, I mean, I do look how people do things, and I think okay, he's put his foot behind his head, but it shouldn't be there, you know, because he hasn't got enough rotation in the hip, he hasn't, you know, spending too much in the lumbar spine. So, I mean, I will look at that in a teacher too, as to how they approach yeah. their own bodies. 
but it's not when I when I get them in the classroom, shall we say, yeah. it isn't all about the physical, you know, telling me how to do a posture. It's about their energy. And is it a calming energy? Is it an irritating energy? Is yeah. It, and it, different things suit different times. So for instance, John Scott. And I really like John Scott. And he is just like it's like a firework, you know those those sparklers that you light at once a year and you wave them around in the sky and yeah. keep pinging off all these lights. He's, he's like that, and the room when he's in it um, is electric, you know, and and he's so encouraging and he uses words like fantastic, that's brilliant, and and why oh, you're doing so well and everybody is so buoyant and enthusiastic and, and the energy is, is lifted, yeah? Um, but it's also quite noisy, yeah? So the room is quite noisy. So if then you're in the mood for some piece of quiet, well, you're not going to get it or you weren't. I mean, teachers change over time. So whether he's still like that, I'm not so sure. He's not going to change. He's not, I mean, since 20 years ago, I mean, you know, yeah. and I met so, him a number of years in Purple Valley, same experience. Yeah, yeah so, so I think, very, yeah, I'd say that John isn't probably going to change, no. Um, yeah, well, that's I, right. I, I so there's the energy that gives you, gives you energy, and it might, it's whatever you need at the time. So, but also, I, it's their presence too. I, I have experienced teachers that didn't seem to be there. Do you know what I mean? So they're adjusting people, or maybe the, the actual physical adjustment itself was correct as far as where they placed their hands and things like that. But you didn't feel the connection. You didn't feel that they were there with you doing it. Now, that might be that they were thinking about the next person they were going to adjust, or it might be that they had problems back home or, or whatever. But for me, the teacher needs to be 100% invested in the students that they have in front of them and not be thinking about the breakfast or about whatever. Um, and unfortunately, I think, you know, yoga can be thought of as a bit sort of wishy-washy, you know, that, that it's okay to be as you are on that particular day, shall we say. And, but for me, I think, you know, people are paying to come and see you you have to give 150% at that day. Whether you feel crap or not, or you've got stuff going on or not, it doesn't matter. You're, it is a job to a certain degree because yeah, people I, are paying you. Yeah, so right. you, yeah. you have yeah. to be professional. Yeah. You have to be professional. And I have come across teachers that I didn't deem to be professional. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think that's, that would put me off straight away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, dodgy technique, unprofessional behaviour, and uh, <laughs> anything along that personality. <laughs> a recipe for a bad teacher. Um, yeah, it seems there's, there's kind of a quality of like encouragement, and then that being kind of at the foundation of what you consider as a good teacher. Um, and then, then there's this other idea that you know, the kind of I guess maybe more traditional idea of Ashtanga, where you're just kind of honestly as you are, you know. Um, and the two, you might not always want to, you know, be the most encouraging, you know, in the room, right? Um, but I think, and also you can easily over-encourage as well. I've definitely seen it with teachers who kind of say everything's great and maybe they should be more honest, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've got to be real. I've certainly been into that bracket before that, you know, like to a degree, that encouragement 
is great and I've learned to do it more, but also there's definitely a role for being honest and pragmatic. And, and I think you're a fan of that, right? Being pragmatic. Absolutely. Yeah. You wouldn't want to say, yeah. oh, yeah, that leg will go there. Yeah, sure, we can put it there. Go do it. And then, you know, they won't thank you in a couple, you know, a couple of months they come back. No, and, and I mean, I myself, not necessarily in the yoga room, but, you know, I've had people come to me because, of course, at, at Purple Valley, I was doing you know, therapy, body work. So I would have people come to me and and uh, say, oh, you know, I've hurt my knee, you know, can you, or I've hurt this part of my hip or whatever, can you sort it out? And often the first thing I would do is, is get them to do a few postures, you know, and say, well, can I see you do this, particularly if it was knees? And, and I would then go, well, you know, you shouldn't be doing Padmasana. You're not open enough, you know, in the hips to do it. And you're just going to mess it up. Or you shouldn't be doing this, you should be doing that, or whatever. And so that in ways was sometimes for some people being too real. Yeah, they're like, but you're yeah. kidding, you know. I'm sure okay. as well. I'm sure yeah. that some, some, um, some dinner times must have been... Um, Maybe <laughs> the teacher came up to me and said, What the hell have you been telling my students? It's like Mark every day. And I was thinking, They probably just said, Don't listen to him. You know, yeah. I'd have a massage, but block your ears. Exactly. <laughs> um, I also, I think it's interesting having hosted the teachers as well in Purple Valley that you see there is a teacher in the room and then there's a kind of personality out, out of the room, which mm. you know, we talked about a little bit off camera before. Um, well, how important is it for you that those two things match or, or what can you, can you kind of give any connection or any thoughts about that? You know, because obviously the idea is that you live the yoga off the mat, that it translates to something more than just physical in the room. And um, I think the teachers that, um, I suppose the teachers that impressed me most at Purple Valley were those that were exactly the same in the room and outside the room. And there were a few of them. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely go along with that because I think... You know, I think the key, the key thing that you look for in a teacher is somebody that's, that's genuine, yeah? So that they are, what they portray in the room is who they are. Otherwise, what you're getting is an act, yeah? And that act is very superficial. So I, I definitely agree with you um, that you, you want that authenticity in a teacher. Um, I think that the times when maybe a change is desirable or is okay, you might have a very boisterous and, and flamboyant uh, person that wants to maybe subdue that a little bit in the room so that they're not distracting or, or that sort of thing. But you can see that it's still their nature is, is true. But I don't um, like it too much when you have yeah complete disparity between what they're like in the room and what they're like outside. Or or even that, you know, the students sometimes are not given the opportunity to talk to a teacher in a social setting. Because, you know, no matter what sort of retreat you go on, quite often um, you don't have that much face time with a teacher because he's teaching a workshop, he's teaching yeah. a class, and there's no time to ask questions um, I'm, I'm or even get to know the person. Do yeah. you think that's level. important? I think that's really important too, yeah. It's, it's that like that, that mm. time extends beyond just the time in the, 
the classroom or the, the yoga shala, that you have some time to actually see under the skin of the, the teacher, because that's when you get to know really their views on things or, or a greater perspective of them as a person, you know, because maybe they're good at asthma, but maybe they, um, you know, don't like dogs or something. I mean, how can you like a teacher that doesn't like dogs? <laughs> That you should say that you know, kind of the part of the mantle of a teacher is to, um, you know, to spend time with the students and to kind of get to know them, right? Which is yeah. in a way the hardest thing, also for a teacher. Like speaking, maybe you might say as well, because you haven't got a subject. Then you, you know, you, it's easy in a way to be the teacher because you've got a program, you're there to do the thing, you know. Um, and then when you're kind of like off camera, off script in a way, you know, mm. and you just have to be. But you're kind of in the role of a teacher, but also in the role of a kind of casual friend. You know, you can't be too teacherly. That kind of gets uncomfortable, right? I often yeah. find myself caught between two poles, right? Yeah, I, I can fully appreciate that. I'm, I'm actually much more um, comfortable in a more formal setting, in the, in the role of a teacher, than I am in a, a social setting. And I think that's the case for many teachers, is that... Yeah, when you have your boundaries and your limits and you know what you're doing, that's one thing. And it really doesn't matter how many people that are there. But let's say, for instance, you know, you could teach a class with, well, hopefully not a class, but let's go with a workshop for 50 people in it or something. And the, the number of people doesn't really matter. But if I was then to enter the same sort of social situation with 50 people in a room, in a I wouldn't feel anywhere near as comfortable. Um, yeah. And I think that's the case with many teachers. And it, it, it's a difficult one to play. And I think that's why sometimes teachers come across a bit cold in a social situation, whereas in the, in the room they might have a certain confidence. And then outside of the, the yoga room, it's like social situations are a bit more awkward for them. And then that makes them seem either disinterested or cold. But it's... Maybe not the case. I mean, yeah, I think it is a really, actually, it's a difficult situation because when you're with your mm. friends, that's one thing and you're not, you know, hopefully they're nothing to do with yoga. You know, that's the mm. best line, you know. And, and yeah. you can be like you. And then when you're, you know, as a teacher, then you kind of have, a, as you mentioned before, a professional duty, you know, like mm. there was this old school idea that you're just you and you just happen to teach yoga. But these days, it, you know, people, as you say, they're paying and quite a lot of money some quite often you know, for instruction and for help and for, you know, mm. for an experience. And, uh, you know, you're taking their money. So you have a professional duty, you know, an ethical duty to provide a certain kind of, yeah, maybe more formal kind of instructed role there as well. Um, and at certain points, you kind of caught, you can be caught between the two, you know. Between, yeah. You know. And I, I think so also that if we're going to say that, that the practice of yoga is more than just the physical practice, then, then you need to see those aspects of your teacher and, and maybe the way they live, the way they approach people, the way they interact with others gives you a good sense of whether that is working for them or not. Do you know what I mean? So I see plenty of, of teachers that have a good physical practice, but actually the way they interact with other people is maybe less than desirable. So then, for me, I think, well, actually, 
if the practice isn't working for you, then um, so how come you can think t- people are, how can you teach um, other people, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so. that, you see, that comes down to a material aspect of the practice because you're not taking to the, the idea of the karmas, right? That you, that you might be practicing and that the yoga has done, you know, you don't know what they were like without yoga, for example. Yeah. Really terrible then, you know. Really terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe it's working. Okay, now I have to revise my skepticism. <laughs> yeah, you've got the kind of karmas flowing through people and the yoga can do only so much to influence those karmas. <laughs> <laughs> They're bad pennies, and that's the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, when I think you... at one stage you were asking me what I'd learned from from um, experiencing and, and interviewing yeah. all these different teachers, yeah. which I think I went round the house and didn't really actually answer you. That went off on a sideways tangent. Um, I think what I've learned is, you know, really. There's lots of different approaches to take you down the same path, yeah, or, or down the same route, and that that sort of fits in with my ideology as well. Is that, that there's no right way to do anything, and 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 that this is what you get from if you can talk to enough different people about the same sort of stuff, you get this idea that there might be a, a general theme, but actually you know, the roots they've taken, how things have influenced them, um, the different approaches they've taken from people practicing twice a day, every day, to people that really, uh, to people that cross-train, to people that just only ever do the practice, and to people that are much into the Sanskrit and other people that are not. And it's just like, there's basically a place for everybody, I suppose. That's what I've, I've taken uh from from being able to interview so many different people is that find your own way. Yeah, be guided by maybe people that are quite charismatic or the people you have an affinity with. Maybe listen to them and help you guide you. But you have to find your own path, what's right for you. And you have to live that path and go down and make mistakes and, and see what happens. Um, and be able to evaluate uh, your journey along the way. And mm. so I think um, that's what I've learned most is that, that, you know, do what you need to do for yourself, what's right for you. There are many paths to Rome. Exactly. Um, but not at the moment. Yeah. All quiet, <laughs> Obviously, your, your, I mean, with your, um, your work you do and your background, you're quite on the anatomy anatomy kind of path yeah right you've got a materially based and anatomy based and it yeah. brings me back to a question i forgot to ask earlier really which you know being an absolute anatomy idiot um and that, <laughs> I, well at least I, as i've gotten gotten on okay with practice and with teaching over the years you ought i to be called up by you um, for not knowing anatomy and uh, teaching my students anatomy, how important is it, or can one do well or do okay in yoga at least without it? A knowledge of anatomy. Yeah, um, it's a, for me, it's a quite straightforward question, a quite straightforward answer, shall we say. And that is, I think everybody should know a certain amount of anatomy. Um, students, as well as teachers, they shouldn't just give all the power to the, the teacher. Um, knowing about what you're using to 
for whatever purpose you're doing the physical asana, whether it's meditation or, or, or meditative flow or, or whatever it might be, um, you're using your physical body. Yeah, and that's the tool that you're using. So much like a car, you need to know that if you don't put any petrol in it, uh, it's going to stop along the path. Or if you don't put any oil in, it's going to seize up. Uh, and that you need to change the tyres every so often. All these things I've actually done myself <laughs> with cars over the years. I actually blew up a turbo by not putting oil in the thing. So I think from a physical point of view, you should know what you're using, yeah, so that you're less likely. My, my main priority really is that people don't have to it In terms of information, or can, could you know it simply experientially, or does it help knowing it more specifically? I mean, we're talking about detail here, right? You can know... Yeah. You know, it kind of in the because I know, I mean, there's a number of teachers that come to my mind before anatomy was really a thing that mm. described to me in, in the kind of layman's terms, or you know, pull this back or push this forward. And they, you know, they could also describe it in anatomy, but they didn't need to pin the terms to, the, to what they were saying. Should no. you know how much do you need to know the specifics? Uh, so you've got two, two questions in there in one. Okay whether you realise it or not. So, <laughs> the, first thing, the first thing is about terminology. Do you need to know the term? Do you need to know that this is external rotation of the hip and this is flexion of the shoulder or whatever? Absolutely not, yeah? It's just words for, for movements and for stuff. It, it helps you maybe read more and research more because that's the terminology that you would come across. It helps you maybe talk to another person that has the same language as you, same as if you were going to yeah, France, yeah. yeah, whatever. You won't be able to order baguettes or, yeah, or that's that. I mean, so, to, rephrase, so, to rephrase the question, that is the superficial aspect. But what I suppose that's, I was absolutely about, in my yeah. defense, what I was really aiming for was that does the better definition of say what's happening with the lower truncator make a difference in experience or what I have seen often, just again. Um, to argue, argue devil's advocate is that it kind of confuses the student and makes them kind of hung up sometimes on, 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 on oh, is it right is it rotation rather than just going with the experience of it which obviously isn't all ideal either um, yeah so so a few things really I think a teacher that has been teaching uh, intuitively shall we say for 30 years or uh, they're going to know a lot of anatomy whether they can name stuff or not, they will know how the body works and the movements that need to be done to do certain postures. They don't need to put a name on them. They know what you need to do and where you need to move it. Yeah. So they would know as much anatomy as I know. It's just like right. I can't see words to it. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's the first thing. Um, how you relay that to a student um, is another matter depends on the individual as to what level of, of language you can use. And again, I can I agree with what you're saying that it can be a barrier uh, to some people that they might get hung up on things. But again, if you can put it across in the right way, it isn't about putting names on things. It is about the experience. So if you are talking about a posture that involves an external rotation of the hip, and that is what's going to protect their knee and it's going to protect their ankle. Well, the, the simplest, you know, experiential statements would be, well, where are you feeling this? Are you feeling any discomfort in your knee? Are you feeling any discomfort? 
can you feel that something is going on in your hip? Why, you know, can, you, can you allow that knee that's in the air to drop down towards the floor? So it, it, it's anatomy without having to be dry and meaningless. Yes. It, for, yes. me, for me, anatomy has to be useful. It has to be to be able to make a difference to what we are interested in, which is the physical yoga practice. Or I'm interested in. <laughs> so, it's, so it has to it has to do something. Otherwise, why the hell I'm interested in learning something just for the sake of it? I want to know that if I can understand how, if my body moves slightly differently, it would allow me a deeper access into this posture, or could stop me from hurting myself, or it would build towards another posture because that's the other thing that I'm very interested in is, you know, sequencing towards more difficult postures. Have I been prepared to do the posture that I'm now about to face? Mm. In other words, have I opened the body in the right ways in order to do this posture? And anatomy helps me to visualize a posture from that perspective as to well, okay, I met that movement in this posture, I met that movement in this posture, but I didn't really come across this movement. So therefore, perhaps I need to do something along that line before I then try this one, because I'm not really going to be ready for it. Particularly if it's a more complicated posture. Yeah, And that also gives us a lead into whether we feel students are ready to move on to the next postures. Have they, have they got the movements that are available or is it a body proportion thing? Because that's the other thing that irritates me a bit. Because I'm it, is okay, you can't do this unless you combine, or you can't do this unless right. you do that. Mm-hmm. Well, from my point of view, the bind is quite often just the fluff. Have they got the, the major movements that are required to do the posture safely if their proportion didn't get in the way? Yeah. Don't and think so therefore, yeah. Can be done that any kind of like opening that can be done from breath and movement. Like sometimes. Do you never feel that the mind can get, I mean, can get, don't, don't shoot the messenger. The, the mind can get in the way sometimes. <laughs> of course, of course. And, and my wife sometimes says, you know, I can see your thinking, or I, you know, I can see, you know, the thoughts turning in your head. And opening yeah. comes to kind of let go of what you know, no? Yeah. Um, mm. Sort of. I, I, I mean, I'm... I think we move in patterns, yeah, and this is the pro- one of the big problems I have is, is that, you know, when, when we do things in everyday life, we do them in a certain way. You know, we always reach to get the teacup out and covered with the same hand. We always stir the tea with the same fingers or whatever. So we repeat and repeat and repeat whatever feels comfortable. And yeah. it feels really odd to do something a different way. So say if we take that in mentions to yoga, you're going to move in whatever way your body feels that it's easiest, shall we say, is the word to use. doesn't mean it's the right way. And so if we continue to expect that somehow the body will sort itself out, I don't think it will, because our patterns are so ingrained, we'll just keep moving in those patterns, which means we won't be able to experience the type of movement we want in the hip shall we say, because my body will avoid that restriction and it will keep avoiding it unless I know that I need to work on it. And I can know that I need to work on it because the anatomy will tell me that we need this movement in order to put my foot behind my head. I need to have that external rotation, flexion of the hip and whatever in order to put it there. And therefore, I want to be experiencing that in other postures 
and know that I have it before I then go stress in my SI joint because I didn't have those movements available to me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but breath does come into it, of course. We yeah. can do a lot of with the breath and the mind to relax the body, but we need to be in the right place to start with. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a clear perspective. Um, uh, <laughs> what, leads, what, what leads on from this is the idea of tradition then, you know, that, I mean, you're, yeah. you know, you're, you are putting Ashtanga in a slightly different um, bracket to the normal um, um, terms of the tradition is uh, viewed under. Um, yeah. What, I mean, you know, I probably don't need to ask this, but, um, you know, having been kind of exposed to a lot of the Ashtanga tradition and the kind of quite a baptism of fire there really in Purple Valley, um, <laughs> any passing thoughts on tradition and, and how, you know, how you might... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know whether I, I went to public school as a as a kid and and had to go to church. I know it's not quite the same and all that sort of stuff. But so I'm always sort of anti any sort of formality as far as um, this is how you should do something. And and that's I mean my perspective on tradition is is I feel it's a bit stifling. I, I like the idea of something that has some age to it. But, but for me, age doesn't necessarily mean, or enduring time doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. Um, so and I also really don't like gurus and, and that whole side of things too. So I have problems with, mm. with many of those sorts of things. Um, I like doing the chant and that sort of stuff um, in front. So it's not like I'm opposed to anything that has a certain... Yeah fall back to... And I think some uh, part of the system, if I'm not wrong, yeah. like, did keep you encouraged to do this, right? Like, it was some part of exactly. the weight of the sequence, the tradition and what lay behind it made it something that get, kept you coming back to it, you know, in the way that maybe, you know, tennis or, or just jump bums and tums, you know. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with bums and tums? You didn't have that weight. <laughs> no, exactly. But I don't know what it is. Yeah, there is a certain quality to, but I don't necessarily think that is, is just a stanger. Yeah. I think you can find that in other forms of yoga. I think you can find that in any particular. We like to think that these things are, are purely the domain of yoga, but I think if you really invested the amount of time that we do practicing yoga into anything else, you probably find those same sorts of qualities are there as well, yeah. Um, but I think there's something about um, being subjected to people that are more freer in their mind to practice yoga that, that, that then maybe allows you to challenge some of your own thoughts and to basically live a little bit healthier, make other changes. There's something within the yoga system um, that, that does inspire change in yourself, I think. And I think that is what's kept us going with this uh, movement modality, we could say, is that there's something more to it. Yeah, I don't know that I can put on it at the moment. But yeah, <laughs> I need another twenty years to find out what that something is. <laughs> I've almost run out of time, and I'm just like, just to, in 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 the true um, in your in your own terms, and 
as a, as a good teacher, let's give a bit of an extra background uh, about about who you are. Um, so a couple of little fun uh, questions, extra, extra fun round. Um, I think I know the answer to this. Where's your favourite place? Uh, oh, probably at the moment, probably like Bali. But we there's lots of places we haven't been yet. So it might be Maldives or Mauritius or somewhere like that if we'd actually been to them. But we, we do really like Bali. Um, but it's not always uh, it's not always just how pretty a place is. Most yeah. often it is the people, yeah. And I really like the Balinese people. They're fun. They smile a lot, which is really important for me. They have big white smiles, um, and anything, any even the smallest interaction, whatever you're doing, buying you know bread or something, um, they've got a smile on their face. So and they're very happy. Um, so I really like that. Uh, and that's one of the main reasons I like Bali. The beaches themselves are not fantastic. I mean, they're okay, but they're surf beaches rather than walking beaches, which is what we do. Um, but the people, the people make Bali, and of course the weather, the 30 degrees most of the time really helps. Yeah. <laughs> when you're used to it from rainy England, yeah. And... <laughs> uh, uh, Guilty pleasure. I probably, yeah, I kind of feel like maybe I know you better than I thought I did. I'm probably going to kind of answer this question for you as well. Let's see if you come up with the same answer as I think you. You know, I, I, like, I like Ben and Jerry's chocolate fudge ice cream. Yeah. And that, that's a, I know you're going to say tiramisu, but... Actually, I'm going to eat tiramisu. Yeah, I like tiramisu too. I don't, I don't really drink much. And I don't really, we don't really eat a lot of desserts or sweet things. And... Uh, I don't smoke. I don't never taken drugs, and so all there's lots of stuff that um, we don't feel we need to do, or we don't. So I never feel like I'm necessarily depriving my, myself. So as far as the guilty pleasure goes, I will, I do like ice cream, but I like chocolate ice cream. But I like anything chocolate, basically. Um, <laughs> but we don't don't have it all of the time. Um, and actually, funny enough. I've been experimenting a little bit recently um, with how much of something do you need, yeah? Because like with the chocolate ice cream, you know, I could easily eat, you know, at least half of the half litres or 250 litres. a normal type of ice cream, 500 millilitres. I could easily eat half of it, maybe I could eat the whole thing. But, but actually, what purpose does that that serve, you know, you're not eating it to fill yourself up, you're eating it to, to get the flavour of what you're eating. So actually in recent times, I've been eating what accounts to maybe one twentieth of a tub of ice cream. <laughs> so just like a skim off the top and, and uh, holding it in the mouth longer and eating it slower and experiencing the same amount of chocolate value, shall we say, as okay. roofing down half the tub. So... Um, I feel like you give me some value in that question as well, because I wanted, I, I just really wanted to get to you on nutrition and stuff. So, um, yeah, <laughs> and just give a little insight into, yeah. Into the way we live, yeah. Yeah, eat a modicum, a tiny little bit of, uh, of what you like. Yeah, and all the rest is rubbish. Now, we everything, actually, we only eat what we like, I'm afraid. We're not very nutritionally minded at all if we don't like something we don't eat it so i think you already know that we neither myself or my wife actually like vegetables 
So we don't eat them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're not at all, but we do take a multivitamin to try and make up for it. <laughs> okay, let's, let's end on a, high, a higher brow note for you. Um, <laughs> finally, uh, moving on from that, what, who, who or what, or, um, um, or what, uh, what is your greatest inspiration? Oh, um, you know, I, I wish it was, you know, something more highbrow, like you were hoping for. You were hoping for You know, um, being, being physically based, you know, my, my life, a daily, my daily life does involve, you know, a large portion of physical activity. So um, although I might be inspired by, you know, some of the work that people do um, for other people, I mean, I suppose that's what that inspires me the most is when you see anybody really, you don't have to be famous, that is, is actually doing selfless acts. Yeah, uh, I think that is, that is something that inspires me and, and thinks, well, that they are, they're good people. They're, they really are making an effort to make a difference. And so that sort of thing inspires me um, without singling out anybody. And then on the, on the physical side, you know, I'm inspired by the sheer wonder of what the body can do. So I like looking at gymnasts that can flick back and can tumble. And I like looking at... Um, calisthenics people that can somehow defy gravity and so I'm really that sort of thing inspires me on the physical level is is challenging the body in a safe way but also to explore the huge potential yeah because I think most of us you know physically are in the realms of 10% of what the body is capable of doing yeah so I, I, like, I like to be inspired okay. by other people Let's let's catch you on the high note. Oh, good. <laughs> I'll say thank you very much to Stu Gerling. You can find him at Love Yoga Anatomy. Um, I think you've got a new uh, anatomy book coming out. Which... Yeah, it should be done this summer. Um, and basically the idea, again, is that it's based around key concepts that you can apply to your yoga practice every day. Yeah, and, and take the dryness out of anatomy. Because to be honest, it can be a really dull subject and that's coming from somebody that likes anatomy and so we've got lots of illustrations um not from cartoony style but that's the essence of them and lots of different characters in the book to try and make it accessible to everybody and but also useful yeah so that's really exciting i've been working on that now for quite a while and that should be hopefully end of june if not beginning of july that'll be ready I shall definitely be purchasing now. Um, you can. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Adam, for having me on that note. the show, I was going to say. And I uh, hope I haven't upset too many people. I don't I think. I think it's uh, food for thought, let's say. Good Thank man. You. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>